Hello, Fuel for Life Nation. Thank you for joining me, your host, Bogdan Kipko, on the 67th episode of the Fuel for Life podcast. This is the place where I am dedicated to fueling your faith in the one who gives faith. And I'm convinced that whatever fills your mind fuels your life. And so my goal is to help you realize the promise of God's gospel for every part of your life. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for leaving a review of the podcast on iTunes. I really appreciate it. I don't take a single listener for granted. Thank you for your time, whatever it is that you're doing right now, working out, taking care of the kids at home, washing dishes in traffic. Hey, I believe in you. You're going to crush it today and you're amazing. Okay. I'm not sure if anyone told you that, but I believe that. So thanks for tuning in. Connect with me on Snapchat, connect with me on Instagram so you can see a little bit of my day and what it looks like. So I'm so excited to get into the content today and we're going to talk about seven seemingly small shifts that will produce major results. Our life is not made up of one gigantic decision, but rather thousands of seemingly insignificant decisions that you make every single day. And the problem with most people is that they they fail not at making the big decisions correctly, but rather they don't make enough small decisions consistently. But it is these seemingly small, discrete, and often unnoticeable decisions that we make every day that ultimately make up the entirety of what our life looks like and what results we are producing. Vincent Van Gogh said this, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Andy Stanley puts it this way, direction, not intention, determines destination. And Craig Rochelle, in one of his books, says this, Most people look at others who are successful and figure they probably made just a handful of big, really important decisions. But the opposite is true. It is the small choices no one sees that results in the big impact everyone wants. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. The healing of this blind man of Bethsaida is the only miracle in the Gospels that proceeds in stages rather than being instantly affected. Now, it's not that Jesus couldn't heal instantly. It's that the process of healing is gradual and revelation happens in stages. And so there was this two-stage cure in this miracle that suggests this process of revelation as much as for the disciples who didn't understand what Jesus was doing as it was for the blind man. So our relationship with Jesus, it's not a project, it's a process. So by the gradual healing of the blind man, Jesus is showing his disciples in particular how they may come to faith. And so like the blind man, the disciples who have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear can also be made to see and hear but it won't happen on their own. You see, this ability for them to see, both physically and spiritually, it was a gift of God. It wasn't human ability. This man's healing from failed sight to partial sight to complete sight comes solely from the repeated touch of Jesus. 
His healing exemplifies a situation of us who move through the same three stages in the gospel of Mark from not understanding to misunderstanding to complete understanding how Jesus says that the Bible says that we see everything clearly. Now, maybe you're in the stage right now and where the man who was being healed by Jesus looked up after a series of touches that Jesus provided to him. He said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. The point is that this stage will pass and you will see clearly. There is hope that you will understand. So in the same way that this repeated interaction with Jesus affected this man's sight to be restored and for him to see everything clearly, I personally believe that these practical shifts I'm going to describe to you today in our daily behavior, they can help us become people who see things clearly, have a crystal clarity about our life, and we're able to spend and be spent on behalf of other people. So here we go. Number one, a seemingly small shift that will produce major results. Make your bed in the morning. Now, If you're married and you live with your spouse, make your bed together. If you're single, make your bed right after you wake up, before you go to school or work, or before you start doing anything else. This very trivial task actually makes a huge impact. It sets up your entire day for success. Because how you do one thing is how you do everything. Making your bed is mentally preparing you for the day by understanding that you're making a shift from sleeping to working to being active. I would even go as far as to say that an unmade bed is a sign of a highly organized life. But you're one decision away from making this one small shift. So start doing it tomorrow. Number two, make time for doing nothing. Now, I know this sounds super counterintuitive, but for many of you who are like me and are addicted to work, this is super crucial because this is the time you reset, recharge, reflect, and renew your mind. I don't know how you're wired, but I'd be willing to bet that if you listen to this podcast, you're wired similarly to me, or there is at least characteristics or traits that I have that you would want to develop in your life. I'm going to make a confession to you. I'm literally addicted to working. I like work more than I like vacation. When most people go to vacation, they say, okay, it's back to reality when vacation is over. But when my wife and I take a few days off here and there, both of us towards the end of our vacation are saying, okay, enough rest. Let's go back to work. I personally think I get this kind of a work ethic from my dad. My dad was the very same way for him Work was rest, and I believe I'm wired very similar, but there needs to be a pause to your daily grind because if you don't pause, there might be a pause placed on you in the name of burnout or frustration because you're too focused on producing rather than resting. This is why there's this crazy phenomenon that happens that most successful people are struggling people. Why is that? Because successful people are always trying to reach the next goal the next matrix, uh, the, the next uh, bucket list that they're going to. So um, there's a actually a study done of what are the regrets that people have of what they did not do in life. And most people regret not doing more, but rather regret not doing less. A 
activities that are completely contrary to your daily grind are therapeutic and can give you new inspiration. So let me give you an example. I don't cook in my household for two reasons. Number one, if I do, I would burn the house down. And number two, I'd starve in a grocery store. So my wife does all the cooking and she's phenomenal at that. If you've seen my snaps or my Instagram, you know Vico Kitchen crushes it. But my wife, when she cooks, she invites me to help her. So me being in the kitchen with her and simply handing her ingredients or just spending time with her brings great joy to the both of us and ultimately this helps our relationship. Now, for me personally, it this time I spend with her, it doesn't produce more podcast downloads or more people inviting me to come speak somewhere or I'm not making an additional phone call or a text to a potential church member. I'm not putting out a fire that's burning within the multiple organizations that I'm involved in. But what this time does is that it prepares me to handle all those things with poise, ease, and collectiveness that I otherwise would not have. I have a trip coming up that I am taking, and usually when I would go on a trip, I would stack it so full of activity because it made me feel productive. But then I'd come back spent and exhausted. So it was super refreshing when I called my sister, who I'll be visiting, and I told her that I'm open to suggestions because I have openings in my schedule. And she said, hey, why don't we go to a museum? Why don't we do some sightseeing? And let me tell you, when she said that, I said, that sounds amazing because work can wait. This time of recharging prepares you for the work that's ahead. The third shift you can make that will produce major results is take advantage of downtime. If you're single or married or you work or you're a stay-at-home mom or you have kids, we all have some sort of downtime during the day. Now, I know the pushback I'm going to get. Most people are going to say, well, I don't have enough time. Okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it. So let's do a quick audit of your time. So in a week, there are 168 hours. Let's say that you sleep for 56 hours in a week. That's about eight hours of sleep a night. Now, if you have young children, I can understand that those hours fall somewhere between four to five hours, depending on the season. Let's say that you also work 40 hours a week, and then you're eating, showering, getting ready, traveling for the other 35 hours in the week. That's about five hours a week. This leaves you with an additional 37 hours. Now, when you what you do with those 37 hours is what will separate the 99 from the 1%. Do what no one else will do. Let me give you an example. If I schedule a meeting and someone doesn't show up for that meeting, instead of thinking that I have one free hour that I can do whatever I want, I actually double down and I accomplish whatever other task that I needed to accomplish during that one hour. Priorities are not what we say they are. They're actually what we end up doing. If I'm standing in line somewhere, I'll get my phone out and I'll begin to text myself new ideas, new concepts, new principles, or an illustration I'm going to share on Sunday at during my sermon. Too often, people make the mistake of saying that, well, 
I need to be in the mood to fill in the blank. People say, I need to be in the mood to start a podcast. I need to be in the mood to write a book, to read the Bible, to pray, to go to church, to go to community group. I need to be in the mood to say something nice to my spouse. I need to be in the mood to develop a new habit or a skill or a practice. You know, almost every day I meet people who belong to the tribe of used to. Have you heard about this tribe? These are people who say things like, I used to play the piano. I used to play the violin. I used to write. I used to go to church. I used to be nice to my spouse. I used to spend time with my kids. But then my life got so busy that I don't have time to do all these things. And my question is, well, what did your life get busy with? We all have a minimum of at least 35 hours to accomplish things. So do a time audit and find those increments during your day when you're not in a meeting, you're not tending to your kids, and you're not spending time with your spouse and double down and do deep work in those moments. In fact, using our time well is a biblical principle. We must be good stewards of the resources God gave us and time is one of the most precious commodities we have. So why would you want to do all this? Because when you become better, everyone around you becomes better. The fourth shift that you should make that will produce major results is identify your essential tools. If you know what you need to use every day, why not create a space in your house or apartment for all those things so that you know exactly where they are? My dad owned a remodeling construction company. And I remember every night before he would go to work the next day, he would organize all of his tools in the garage, every tool he needed, every hammer, every saw, every tool belt, every other tool I probably can't uh, name right now. He organized all of it. And in the morning, he would just take everything, put it in the truck and go to work. Now, this is a crazy concept for many people, I understand. And I've been there too. How many times our mornings or your morning has been filled with frantic shouts of help, for help, because you don't know where your keys are, your phone battery's dead, you don't have a spare charger, you can't find your socks, the shirt you wanted to wear is not washed, your car is, your car is tank, uh, gas tank is on empty, the gas station is too far from your house, and you're already 15 minutes late for the meeting. Trust me, I've been there and done that. I remember once in my very early 20s, I was super disorganized and I had this meeting with a bunch of executives in downtown Seattle. I came to this meeting about 20 minutes late because you can understand finding parking and all that good stuff. It took a while. As I strolled into this meeting, all eyes were on me. I thought, wow, why are they so upset? Well, it turns out that they couldn't understand how I had time to stop in and buy myself a latte which I was proudly carrying in my hand. And I had time for that, but I did not have enough courtesy to come on time for the meeting. My friends, if you spend about 10 minutes the night before preparing for your day, this seemingly small shift will produce major results. Not only you, but your family will be much happier with you, I promise. Here's the fifth small shift. Do your toughest work first. We all know what our tough work is because all of us avoid it doing it at all costs. Think of that one project or that one task that you've been absolutely avoiding doing. Why are you doing that? Because that's your toughest work. 
One of my friends recently told me that the reason that he procrastinates to tackle his toughest work first is because they're anxious about starting the unknown. And so they're they put off doing it until that small campfire turns into a forest fire. And then you have no choice but to tackle that task. Why would it let, Why would you let it get to this point? Use this life hack and make this small shift. So let's say that you wake up in the morning and you know that you either need to clean your house or you need to call an important client or a person or you need to have a tough conversation with somebody or you have to set up for a party you're having that night if you're hosting people. What do 99% of people do during this kind of time? They usually start to check emails, to start browsing social media, or they engage in completely useless activity that masquerades as productivity, but they're just spinning their wheels. For me personally, one of the toughest mental work that I get to do is writing or creating content. Personally, I'd much rather browse Instagram or YouTube and see how these giants who have verified Instagram accounts are crushing it at life. And I sort of start to vicariously live through them. Their productivity becomes mine. I'm not doing the task that I need to. Or when I'm writing a sermon, I'd rather read a ton of books and commentaries. But the hard part comes when with the aid of the Holy Spirit, I'm syncing together all these pieces of data in order to make a coherent message that will glorify Jesus. So make this small shift in whatever your toughest work is, get it out of the way first. So we just talked about these shifts that will produce major results. The first five we talked about were practical or tangible in nature. For these last two, I'd like to switch to discussing two mental shifts that we must go through in order to produce more results. The The sixth shift that we should make is Learn to celebrate the success of others. One way you can do this is to verbally declare your encouragement for the other person. Try this next time that somebody experiences success or they get a promotion or they buy a new house or they buy a new car or they have something exciting happening in their life. Fill in the blank what that is. And you see joy in their heart, joy in their eyes. I want you to verbally declare your rejoicing with them. Let them know, hey, you're amazing. Hey, you're crushing it. You're doing great. I'm super happy for you. You bought a brand new house. I'm very happy for you. You bought a brand new car. I'm very happy for you. You just got married. I'm very happy for you. You're having another baby. I'm happy for you. You're, you got a promotion at work. I'm happy for you. You spent seven months in Europe while I've been in traffic every single morning for two hours. I'm genuinely happy for you. The Bible teaches us to do that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And I'm convinced that when you rejoice with others and you rejoice with their success, this type of emotion and action is generative in that it creates more love, more encouragement, and more unity among your family or the community that you're with or your friends. Just recently, I had something really good happen to me, and one of my friends came up to me with a huge smile on their face. They said, hey man, I'm really happy for you. Congratulations. You know, this type of feedback was actually more important and more impactful than whatever it is that happened to me. With social media, Snapchat, Instagram, it's very easy to be caught up in the comparison trap. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. Contentment. 
So instead of focusing on what others have that you don't, focus on what you have that others would only wish to possess. If we all simply celebrated each other instead of merely tolerating each other, we would have more of this agape, Christ-centered, generative love among one another. And this is the only type of love that actually creates more of it as it is demonstrated. So the next time somebody gets a promotion or buys a new house or their church is growing or they're making three times more money than you are, reach out to them and congratulate them. This seemingly small shift will suffocate your insecurity, leaving it no oxygen to feast on. Here's the last and certainly not least small shift that will produce major results. Wherever you are, be there. It's been said that attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. And in fact, this is exactly what God in Christ did to us. He gave us attention by going to the cross, by dying on it for our sins. This is the generosity that he demonstrated towards us. So we should demonstrate that towards other people. The world understands it. We as Christians should too. Attention is the most expensive commodity that exists in the marketplace today. Markets and companies are spending billions of dollars vying for your attention. How else do you think ads of things you've Googled are showing up in your Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat feeds? So instead of trying to bemoan this problem or saying, I want to change the whole world, Change the world for one person by solely focusing on them without interruption. We're beginning to lose this sacred practice, and I believe we must aggressively try to reclaim it. So this small shift will allow you, if only temporarily, uh, to pay attention to people more. So for example, I personally refuse to speak with somebody if they're on their phone browsing social media. I just basically let them know that once they're done, They can let me know and I can pick up the conversation. I've been guilty of this as well. So one of the practices that my wife and I do sometimes is we'll leave our phone in the house or when we leave, um, when we leave or we'll leave it in our car and we do this intentionally so that we can focus on each other and on what we're saying. The ironic thing is that we are all becoming walking zombies alone together. So wherever you are, be there and watch the quality of your relationships increase as you begin to be more aware of others and pay attention to them. So there you have it, Fuel for Life Nation. I personally believe that these seven seemingly small shifts will produce major results. I'd love to hear some feedback. If you initiated any of these in your life, snap me, Instagram me. I'd love to hear it. Much success to you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Um, if you would, please leave a rating and a review of the podcast. And a great compliment I can receive is if you just tell some one of your friends about the podcast and say, hey, check it out. And until next time, remember, before God will do a great work through your life, he wants to first do a great work in your life. And there is hope, and his name is Jesus. Let my world be life. Let
my words be true